0: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Have you
1: ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is
0: advised.
2: The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries, of curiosities, of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities.
3: So we were just having a, uh, a deep philosophical discussion involving these subtle nuances of everyday phrases.
1: Well, it's weird that the word fine can mean, like, just okay, or it can mean
3: exceptional. Like, what, very fine, though. If it's very fine... It's exceptional or? Well,
1: no, just fine can mean exceptional because if you have fine china, right. it's oh. not just okay china.
3: Yeah, that's, that's that's true.
1: Right, and very fine. I always thought, it, it just reminds me of the juice that I used to drink a lot. So when, uh, when I was a small baby tiny cat, uh-huh. I would go with my dad on the weekends and we'd go to the scrap yard and uh, he would sell metal that he had acquired uh working at the mill
3: wait 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 acquired
1: so he would acquire this metal uh-huh. and then we would go to the scrapyard and we would sell it
3: so he re- he acquired it like maybe when nobody was looking
1: i don't know the ins and the outs of it i'm just saying okay. we had metal mm-hmm. to sell and when we would go i would get out of the vending machine they had very fine juice
3: mm-hmm.
1: and i would get cran raspberry mm-hmm. and so Um, Cranapple raspberry juice reminds me of...
3: The time that you used to assist your dad in uh, scrap metal theft?
1: It wasn't theft. It was selling.
2: God.
3: (laughs) Okay. It's funny how our brains work, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, it delights me that you had such a... A tight bond with, with your dad. He would take you out for father daughter scrap metal stealing day.
1: I've already expressed this. It wasn't theft, it was selling.
3: Okay. All right. Let's move along. Jeez. No, your dad was a very fine person. Wait a minute. All right. In the 1920s, there lived a man whose name was Paul Amadeus Dienach. Paul lived in Central Europe and was uh, a Swiss Austrian professor. His name's hard to pronounce, so I'm just gonna to refer to him as Paul, Paul going forward. Sure. In the year 1921, Paul fell victim to what was called, at the time, The Sleeping Plague. I did a an, a, a topic on that early on in the Box of Oddities. Mm. I think it may have even been like one of the first 10 or 15 episodes.
1: The Sleeping Plague is what the movie Awakenings was based on, right?
3: Exactly right. right. The Sleeping Plague, happened shortly after or actually kind of overlapped a bit with the 1918 influenza epidemic. It was a lesser known but equally puzzling epidemic. The official medical term was encephalitis lethargica. The epidemic happened between 1916 and 1930. It was estimated to have affected at least a half million people in Europe alone, where Paul lived at the time. It then spread across the globe to hundreds of thousands of other victims. Encephalitis lethargica is characterized by high fever, sore throat, headache, lethargy, double vision, delayed physical and mental response, and catatonia. In severe cases, patients would enter a coma-like state. Some stayed in that catatonic state for decades. Some never woke up. Some, decades later, regained consciousness, like in the movie Awakenings.
1: Because of L-Dopa.
3: Yeah, because of a Parkinson's disease medicine. These patients that did awaken decades later, it was only for a brief time before they slipped back into their catatonic state. And you mentioned the film Awakenings. Famed neurologist and writer Oliver Sacks wrote a book about it. In fact, that was what the movie was based on. He said, they would be conscious and aware, yet not fully awake, they would sit motionless and speechless all day in their chairs, totally lacking energy, impetus, initiative, motive, appetite, effect, or desire. They registered what went on about them without active attention and with profound indifference. They never conveyed nor felt the feeling of life. They were as insubstantial as ghosts and as passive as zombies. So in the case of Paul.
1: Wait a minute, are zombies passive? Really,
3: It depends on which movie you're watching, I guess. (laughs)
1: Because most of the zombies that I know about are not passive. (laughs) They are chasing you to the end of the world, and they are (laughs) going to try to eat your brains.
3: I guess maybe in the more traditional sense of Haitian zombies, you know, that are just mindless individuals who blindly follow orders. All
1: right, all right. Got it, got it, got it.
3: So in the case of Paul, he had two bouts of the sleeping plague. One in which he stayed in a catatonic state for about a week, and then he recovered completely. And then a few months later, he again fell into a catatonic state, this time for a year. Oof. When he awoke, he seemed detached from society. He secretly wrote a diary that came to light after his death that claimed that during that year, his consciousness had migrated into the body of a man named Andreas Northam, who lived in the year 3096. Whoa. That man, Paul claimed, had suffered a serious head injury in the future, and his soul had apparently moved on, but his body was still alive.
1: This reminds me a lot of a book that I read years ago, and I can't remember the title of it, and I've actually looked for this book over and over and over again, but I cannot remember what it's called. And it's very similar where a guy kind of falls in and out of the consciousness of another person. Uh. And the only thing I can remember is that the other person lived in Hawaii. Hmm, and so it's real hard to Google that.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs>
3: maybe, maybe one of your freaks know what book she's, she's maybe. talking
1: about. Well, that could be a fun game. What book am I talking
3: about? <laughs> So that man, Paul claimed, had in fact suffered a head injury and his soul had left his body and moved on, but his body was still alive. And while his body in 1921 was in a coma, his spirit somehow found its way to a living body whose spirit had moved on in the year 3096. He claims that those in the uh, 40th century were familiar with this phenomenon. He said the doctors in the future referred to it as a consciousness slide. So while his body in 1921 was catatonic, he claims to have lived an entire year in the future in another man's body.
2: Wow.
3: And uh, when he recovered from that catatonic state in 1921, while his memories were still fresh in his mind, he wrote them all down in his journal.
1: So what you're saying is he had to do it while his brain was still fresh.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like zombies are looking for (laughs) I imagine it's a lot like when you wake up from a dream, you remember the details more vividly than, like, say, six hours later when you try to recall what you had dreamt the night before. So for the rest of his life, he never spoke of this experience to anybody. He never intended for anybody to read his journals. He was just journaling. It wasn't until after his death that his journal was discovered. When Paul died in 1924, one of his students... Giorgio Papachatzis translated his journal from German to Greek and then published the book under the title Chronicles of the Future. Now, since then, it's been in and out of circulation over the decades and uh, can currently be found on Amazon, which is where I found it and, uh, and read it. It's in English now, by the way. In his journals, he did the best that he could to describe what he allegedly experienced. He speaks of waking up in what appeared to be some sort of a futuristic apartment. It was in fact a 40th century version of a hospital. He finds out that he had been there for quite some time, but in a coma. His name was Andreas Northland, and he was a research scientist. His awakening caused quite a stir, and the doctors were surprised and happy that he appeared to have woken up. Now, the man whose body Paul occupied was a well-respected person in society. Word quickly got around to friends of Andreas Northland that he had regained consciousness, and so they all gathered in his room to celebrate his recovery. He talks in great detail about regaining his strength and finally working up the nerve to tell his doctor what he was experiencing, how he felt that he had lived in the 20th century and had an entire life and a love of his life that he had left behind. The doctor didn't seem shocked at all by this revelation and referenced it as a well-known condition, again, that they referred to as a consciousness slide. Soon, his friends became aware of his situation, but still thought of them as their friend. He talks about uh, going on walks, through beautiful parks with these people, having deep philosophical discussions with them while picnicking, and just having conversations as he slowly built his strength back. Okay. And he learned a great deal about the society that he lived in, and of course, took great interest in the history of civilization. Well, the history of civilization from a 40th century perspective, the future perspective from somebody in the 20th century. He had written that the 21st century was going to be a rough time for people. Hmm. This, of course, was ancient history when he supposedly learned it in the year 3096. But what he learned, he said, was that people in the 21st, uh, 21st century would suffer from psychological problems and that overpopulation would cause unprecedented issues like not having enough space to live or even enough food. That would force us to start making attempts to colonize Mars. He also talked about there being weapons of mass destruction and uh, there were international laws to prevent them. This, of course, was decades before the atomic bomb. Right. Now, he said that, uh, getting back to the Mars thing, that we would colonize Mars in the year 2204. And then a a rather large scale natural disaster wiped it out. About 20 million people were killed in just 60 short years after the initial colonization. So according to him, we go to Mars 2204 and in 60 years it's wiped out by a natural disaster and humans never again attempted to settle on Mars. In 2309, a new epoch would begin. But mankind was suffering from um, a global man-made disaster. He didn't go into details as to what that was. But he said there would be world, a world war starting in that year that would last for a century. And it would wipe out most of mankind. In fact, striking down almost all of civilization centered, mostly in East Asia and Africa. They started counting the years over from the number one in the year 2396. It was also the year that uh, global parliament was formed that would rebuild the civilization basically from the ground up. However, that government was a form of totalitarianism, and the national governments would oppose it for several centuries. It took another f- two to five centuries before they were able to develop a planetary or global consciousness. At this point, there were no economic inequities but people were still, as he said, spiritually uh, weak and lazy. They, he refers to this era as the Dark Ages, and it lasted until 3,400.
1: Now, just to reiterate, this is stuff that he wrote in his private diary yep. that he never intended for yep. anyone to see. Mm-hmm. That was just what he he actually believed that he experienced this. It wasn't yes. like he was writing a
3: story. No, he, yeah, it, all the indications are that he believed that this was true, and that he was just journaling it to to get it down, but never had any intentions of the world seeing it.
1: Was he ever a writer outside of this piece or I mean, do we have because my first my instinct is that this is a story and he's writing it from the perspective of someone that this had happened to. Like, well, wouldn't this be neat if, yeah. but if he was never a writer outside of this incident, then that seems less likely.
3: No, he was a scientist. He was not, I mean, I'm sure he did write, but uh, there is no indication that he had any aspirations to be a an author.
1: So he was a scientist both in his yes. old timey life yep. and in his future timey life. Yes. Eh. That seems.
3: I mean. He learns that life is easy after this period. People work less. People work less and less during their lifetime. By the year 3382, an amazing phenomenon occurred. It seems that people, one after another, began spontaneously acquiring some type of new spiritual ability, a sixth sense, if you will. He referred to it as hypervision. Hyperintuition is another way that he described it. It was referred to as direct access to a great spiritual light or direct knowledge. Now, this new ability was accompanied by powerful creative abilities and amazing clarity. Mm-hmm. And according to him, it was due to a random genetic mutation in the brain. Ooh. So the parliament ultimately would become very successful and ensured that the new system put in place distributed wealth labor abundance, and comfort equally to all people. Between the years of 3,400 and 4,000, almost 1,000 years after the Dark Ages, came what was called the Golden Age. He claimed, And this is what he uh, woke up in. He claimed that there were no scientists, no technocrats in global government. There were what were referred to as universal creators. These people simultaneously combined the qualities and abilities of a scientist, artist, philosopher, mystic, and much more. Everything in society is free transportation, food, clothing, housing. There's no private property. And the only inequities were our honor and reputation. I kind of love that. Right? Success is equated with emotional, mental, and spiritual development, as well as self-improvement, not so much on technological and material standards of living. Uh, The only requirement to be a member of this society is that a person has to work two years in their lifetime. Usually that was done between the ages of 17 and 19 years of age. You worked for society. Once that obligation was fulfilled, everyone would be taken care of. Everything would be taken care of. The population of earth at this point was just 1 billion people. So there, was pl- there were plenty of resources for everybody. And because everybody was cared for, the laws in their society were very few. Uh, It's because criminal intentions of individuals in society were almost completely non-existent. Right. And if you have everything you need, you know? Yeah. There were, in fact, only three laws. Those that had to do with the term of work of two years, those that were related to the manner in which travel and distribution of goods were carried out, and those related to demography essentially birth control while paul was living that year in the future all he could think about was getting back to the woman that he loved in 1921 so a year later he wakes up he gets back she's moved on and married somebody else and he was greatly depressed and started yearning for his friends that he had left back in the 40th century
1: (laughs) back in the future
3: back to the future paul died In 1924, just two years after he came out of his year-long catatonic state, after his death, one of his students, again, Giorgio Papachatzis, translated his journal from German to Greek and published the book under the title Chronicles of the Future. It's been, as I said, in and out of um, circulation for years, but it's available now on Amazon. I've read it. It's fascinating, and it goes into far greater detail of our future than I could possibly begin to relate during this uh, this episode. That's really cool. But it's really it's really stinking interesting. I got my material from Medium Magazine, Ancient Origins, scientificmystery.com, and of course the book chronicles from the future the amazing story of Paul Amadeus Dinach. 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 I've kind of had this topic in my back pocket for a while, because mm-hmm. uh, I actually read that book two or three years ago, but it was just so complicated and so complex it it just seemed almost overwhelming to try to boil it down into a succinct understandable (laughs) storyline
1: yeah i have a few of those too that i'm like i'd love to talk about this but i i don't know if i have the brain capacity
3: So I finally just decided to roll my sleeves up and give it a go. I
1: loved it. That if, was really interesting. If
3: you thought it was interesting, take the time and uh, check the book out because there's a lot more to it than what I was able to, uh, to relate.
2: The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth.
3: This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, If you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca.
1: And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to
3: manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer
2: and now that thing in the middle according to
3: a recent article in gizmodo at a recent conference amazon announced it's working on a feature that can synthesize short audio clips of a person's voice and then reprogram it as longer speech They showed off a demonstration where the voice of a deceased loved one, a grandmother in this case, was used to read a grandson a bedtime story. That's right. Amazon is planning to bring the voices of recently deceased loved ones back from the dead. Where is the opt out box?
1: We got an email from Delia. Re. A boo effect. Man, I swear we need to start just a whole episode that's just this shit. I know. Hi there from Texas. I'm listening to Box 446 with my coworker Jake, and I read the title, The Smell of Bat-Winged Demons. And it just so happened that I visited my mom and dad, and my mother told me the week before that my aunt and my mother saw a bat because they saw claws. They thought it was dehydrated, and they took a picture. So I tell my mom to send me the picture, And it was just a big moth. (laughs) I tell her and she was like, oh, good thing I didn't keep it. Mm -hmm. Love your podcasts both. Keep them up.
3: (laughs) Oh, moms. (laughs) Regarding your Pittsburgh toilet episode, we got an email. I've heard about this recently. I'm a resident contractor in Milwaukee of 30 years. Milwaukee. And uh, have seen many of them here as well. The explanation of them being for overflow is to me silly. Ooh. First of all, even back then most homes had basement floor drains and any backup would come through that first. Second, what's called a standpipe would be an easier and cheaper solution. Third, I've seen many where it was obvious that at some point there had been a wall around it, usually a simple wall that probably decayed to the bottom after being in contact with moist basement floors for decades, leading to its removal. Fourth, lack of a sink. They didn't have the same knowledge of germ theory that we do today so probably a lot less hand washing after shaking the snake and wiping your bum that's uh tony from wisconsin
1: okay tony most of what you say makes perfect sense and i can get on board that and Mm -hmm. i'm not a plumber so you know um but i'm gonna say that hand washing is important even if it doesn't involve germs like feces on your hand. Mm-hmm. Never cool. Never cool. <laughs> but Rega- regardless of germs.
3: Amanda sent us a uh, email. Cat and JG loved the podcast and the new one too, The Shallow End. Thank you. You guys are absolutely hilarious. Uh, here's my idea for the 500th episode. Why not give away an actual box of oddities? Ooh. You hold a raffle, put together a box full of mystery oddities and give it away to a winning fan or... Make a few and make them available for sale on your merch page. We actually thought of something kind of like that.
1: Yeah, like a monthly subscription kind of oddities box.
3: But we decided that's way too much work. It is a
1: lot. It is a
3: lot. And then there's this one. I love this. Hi Cat and JG. To be honest, this is not my first boo effect. My former coworker Danica and I had several small boo effects and chuckled as we called them out to each other. (laughs) But this one just made my day i've been working on a new business but the hang-up i kept having was naming it oh yeah yeah that's tough
1: we struggled with the box of oddities we did like legit that was the hardest thing about this podcast being created was what to call it i still wonder if we should have gone with shit that's weird yeah (laughs) i loved that yeah
3: yeah i think i think there was a variation of that we considered at one time too uh can you believe this shit?
1: (laughs) There were lots of profanities in our initial thoughts.
3: She goes on to say, I was so stressed. I stayed up all night last night coming up with a name. I wanted to use Compass in it somehow, Mm. but there's just too many other coaching businesses that have used that. Mm. So here I am at 3 a.m. in the morning researching navigational tools, and I learned about a Ah. the predecessor of the compass. Then at work today, half delirious from lack of sleep, listening to Box 442, that thing in the middle. And what did you talk about? Polaris Jack. A word I've never heard to my knowledge before this morning. Of course I immediately had to stop what I was doing and share this with you guys. Thanks for all the oddities you share and keeping me entertained during most boring days. Uh, flying my freak flag proudly for over a year and a half now, Becca. Thank you, Becca, and, and best of luck with your new business.
0: On weekends, we dive into the industry's shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and, of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Did you know that the curator was almost named Little Dingo the Dog-Faced Boy instead? Dodged a bullet there, huh? this is the box of oddities
1: well we've talked about tardigrades before right
3: tardigrades the little uh, creatures that look like <laughs> miniature um caterpillars little or, water bears yeah water bears yeah
1: so tardigrades were discovered in 1773 they're also sometimes called moss piglets M- and what moss piglets <laughs> <laughs> they are near microscopic aquatic animals with plump segmented bodies and flattened heads.
2: <clears throat>
1: Three years after their initial discovery, Italian biologist Lazzaro Spallanzani named the group Tartigradia.
3: I like moss piglets better. I know. It also doubles as a you know a, a serious burn. Shut your mouth, you moss piglet. <laughs>
1: I don't know if it's the burn that you think it is. It's a burn. So there are currently about 1,300 known tardigrade species within Tardigradia phylum. Every single one of them is tiny. Water bears can range from point zero zero two to 0.05 inches but they usually don't get any bigger than 0.04 inches or about one millimeter long, according to the World Tardigrade Database.
3: There is such a thing. There is. My prayers have been answered.
1: In addition to being super tiny, they are nearly indestructible. They live in oceans, freshwater lakes and rivers, and the water film that coats terrestrial mosses and lichen, they can survive in a wide range of environments from altitudes of over 19,600 feet or 6,000 meters. That's insane. In the Himalayan mountain range to ocean depths of more than 15,000 feet below the surface.
3: the moss pigs is resilient.
1: Yeah, they're so resilient to Earth's most extreme conditions that some have speculated if they actually come from outer space. Scientists have reported tardigrades in hot springs, on top of Himalaya, from polar regions to the equators, under layers of solid ice, and within ocean sediments.
3: So they can survive pretty much anything. Pretty
1: much anything. Wow. They're thought to be able to survive a complete global mass extinction event. That would include things like gamma ray bursts or meteorite impacts or any sort of astrological event. Some of them can survive extremely cold temperatures down to negative 460 degrees
3: Fahrenheit. So it's a very real possibility that if there is another mass extin- extinction event, these guys would survive and evolve into the dominant species, building their own technological civilization, and they'd have guys named like Carl.
1: Um, up until the survive. Like you said, they would survive. If you just put a period there, then absolutely. Yes. Um, They're one of the reasons that a lot of scientists believe that it would be nearly impossible to eradicate all life on Earth. Because 460 degrees below f- zero Fahrenheit, that's pretty intense. And they can survive extremely hot temperatures up to 300 degrees Fahrenheit. How
3: is this even possible? I do
1: not know. It
3: seems so illogical.
1: They also can handle ionizing radiation at hundreds at doses hundreds of times higher than a lethal dose for a human. In fact, a 2008 study published in the journal Current Biology revealed that some species of tardigrades when dehydrated could weather a 10 day trip in low earth orbit and return to earth unharmed by solar ultraviolet radiation and the vacuum of space. They can go without food or water for more than 30 years only to later rehydrate, forage, and reproduce. Wow. They're exceptional and wonderful and just darling. Uh, But they're not the only animals that are sometimes referred to as immortal. Please note, I'm saying immortal with air quotes, immortal. Let me ask you this. Yeah.
3: Based on what we know of this uh, tardigrade species, what is their average lifespan? Do we have any idea?
1: Yeah, it's only like a few months.
3: Wow, that sucks. I know. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But their
1: dormant periods can last forever. Wow. It's wild. Similarly to the tardigrade situation, deloid rotifers are microscopic organisms uh, slightly too small to be seen with the naked eye. So you, if you had really good eyesight, maybe you could spot one, hmm. but mm, probably not. They are often referred to as ancient asexuals due to their asexual reproductions. Embryos grow and develop without the need for fertilization. And science has shown that this particular behavior goes back over 25 million years. They've been able to establish this through fossil evidence that these guys have been kicking around, reproducing willy-nilly without the help of a quote-unquote opposite sex.
3: See, this seems like a far more efficient model. For life. Why didn't these guys take over the world mm. and evolve to a point where they could ruin it like us? I
1: don't know. Mm. Yeah. Um, in June 2021, biologists reported that restoration of a Deloid rotifer after being frozen for 24,000 years in the Siberian permafrost.
3: That's not real. Yeah.
1: Really? Yeah. So that's pretty amazing. That's
3: fascinating.
1: Again, not immortal, but uh, pretty darn close. Turritopsis durini, sometimes called the immortal jellyfish. Uh, He doesn't survive by going dormant, though. Instead, They age in reverse. They're found in the waters of Japan and the Mediterranean Sea. (laughs) The Mediterranean. (laughs) I'm going there. Uh, The immortal jellyfish is the only animal that can go back to being sexually immature after having reached maturity. So when this little jelly bean gets old or sick, his bell and tentacles deteriorate and he turns back into a polyp, one of the very early stages of life. Through a process known as cellular transdifferentation where cells change from one type directly into another producing an entirely new body plan
3: wow they must be studying this with the idea in mind that uh, somehow they could adapt that uh, natural process to us as human beings
1: yeah, I hope not. Um, this process can be indefinite as long as the jellyfish doesn't die of either disease or being eaten. It's pretty amazing because if you look at the life cycle of the jellyfish, uh. it's like full-ass jellyfish, mm-hmm. right? And then uh, he has a little larvae guy and then the larvae becomes a polyp and then it's like a stemmed polyp where he's starting to get his little guys, wow. right? And then he's got all of his little guys. Um, But in this this particular jellyfish's life cycle, once he gets kind of decrepit, he's like, fuck this, I'm going back to being a polyp. And then he just starts the process over again.
3: I don't know if I'd want to do that though, you know. High school sucked for me.
1: <laughs> Related to the jellyfish, hydras belong to the phylum nidaria, a group of symmetrical invertebrates that include jellyfish, sea anemones, and corals. The Hydra is best known for its unusual ability to regenerate parts of its body, making the creature pretty much biologically immortal because it can just keep new bits, new bits, new bits, new bits, kind of like the flatworm. We talked at length about the flatworm one time. That guy can just, oh, you've chopped off my bits. I'll just grow new bits. And from the new bits, he can grow new bits. So there's no death he just keeps growing.
3: When you cut him in half, do both pieces sprout new
1: The I think if I remember correctly, with the flatworm, he it's the greater of the two. Okay. Kind of like a dollar bill if you rip it in half, only the the side that's more than a 50% of the dollar bill is worth anything. I see. I don't know if that's still true or not.
3: I don't remember when that was ever true, but
1: It's true. <laughs>
3: I mean, you probably know better than I. You were the one involved in scrap metal thievery. Probably counterfeiting as well. That's
1: not accurate. (laughs) Clams. Clams grow in seasons when the water is warm. So you can actually count the growth rings of a clam like you would the age of a tree. You count the darkest rings. Each ring represents one year, which I didn't know. It's pretty neat. Anyway, climate researchers at Bangor University in the United Kingdom recently counted 405 annual growth rings on the shell of a quahog clam. What? These mollusks tootle about on the northern coast of Iceland, about 262 feet deep, and... This guy apparently had been making his way around that area for some time. Now, the official world record for the oldest animal belongs to a different clam, a 220-year-old clam taken from American waters in 1982. Unofficially, the record belongs to an Icelandic clam housed in a German museum who is purported to be about 374 years old.
3: He's, He's still alive?
1: He's still alive. They're keeping him alive. at least he was at the time this article was written. Now, this new clam was at least 30 years older, according to the University team. But he died when they were counting his rings, which is just one of those things that makes me really struggle with humans. Like, can we just not? (laughs) Could we, like, try to just not? Hmm?
3: You're asking an awful lot. (sighs)
1: <sighs> the reason that these clams live so long scientists believe is because of what's called slow cell replacement process though we have no idea how or why this works clams so much better than people you know who's not immortal, though, even though that meme you saw said so? Lobster. Now, lobsters do grow until they die, but really they only end up being like 30 years old. They're, you know, they 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 continue to molt, but eventually their their molting will exhaust them and then they die. But for some reason, it's been kicked around for a while that lobsters never die. They sure do. <laughs>
3: Sweetheart, I don't understand the thinking process of a lobster, but I'm guessing that 30 years to them seems like a good long life.
1: You think so? Oh, sure. I want to understand your thought process very much. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, they don't live forever, but a lot of other things seem to. I got most of my information from Reader's Digest, BBC, Wikipedia, of course, Life Science, Bio Explorer, and the National
3: Geographic. I loves me the National Geographic.
1: Why do you so often turn into an old blues musician? Later I loves you... me some National Geographic.
3: That's just the way my brain works as opposed to a lobster.
1: Do you think that lobsters love
3: beans and rice? No, but I'm they very are tired. they're very big fans of blues music.
1: Oh, well. Yeah. Who's not? That's my question. Haggis has been really into reggae lately.
3: That's true. <laughs> he has been cat read somewhere that dogs like reggae music so it soothes them i i'm in the living room and i hear this noise coming out of the bedroom and uh, cat sitting next to me i'm like what is that is our neighbor eddie does he have a party or something and she says no that's haggis he's in the other room listening to bob marley and the whalers mm-hmm. well you know at least he's got good taste
1: <laughs> we've had some questions recently about live shows and are we planning to do more live shows anytime soon and the answer is not right away not no. right away no. maybe
3: maybe the uh, beginning of the year we're looking at so much with the new podcast uh, the shallow end and other things going on in our lives uh, it's all we can do right now to uh, to keep up with it but we were kicking around a pretty cool idea and we've actually spoken with uh, our rep at the Looped Network, about this.
1: We want to do a game night. Yeah, freak's game night. We think that could be fun. And we hope that you also think that would be fun. Otherwise, that would be a lonely game night.
3: (laughs) Yeah, we'll tell you all about that as we continue to develop that idea. And uh, we will see you next time for more stories of the strange, bizarre, and also tips on how to steal scrap metal from a paper mill.
1: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
2: Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. The box of dot com on Facebook at Facebook dot com slash box of oddities podcast on Twitter at box of oddities and Instagram at box of oddities podcast. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil.
0: History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.